be with you this morning in Peniel, and we trust that the Lord will bless us and, and encourage us in his word. We're going to consider the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 14 and verse 1. I'm sure there are words which you are very familiar with. You've perhaps heard sermons on them. You've read them yourself, perhaps, and been comforted by them. You may have heard them being read in, in funerals and other services. But our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to his disciples and he says to them in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Very important words. The disciples were bewildered, they were worried, they were frightened, they didn't understand what was happening, and they were afraid of the future. I wonder if that's how some of you are feeling this morning. Perhaps providence doesn't make sense, you can't understand you're confused. You find it difficult to trust God in difficulties. You wonder what's going to happen to me or my family. And that's exactly how these disciples felt. They didn't understand what our Lord Jesus had just said to them, that he was going away. Our Lord had told them on several occasions over the previous months. Told them that he would suffer, that he would be crucified, that he'd be raised again from the dead. On one occasion, Caesarea Philippi, uh, Peter actually rebuked the Lord Jesus for saying such things. And our Lord had to tell him, get behind me, Satan. But the disciples could not take it in. They couldn't understand they couldn't relate what our Lord was saying to their situation, their future. And we're very much like them. We may read the Word, we may hear sermons, we may be very encouraged, but when it comes to practical daily lives and problems and situations and bad news that we sometimes hear, we, we can't relate the word. We don't understand what God is doing. And so the Lord Jesus Christ knew exactly how these disciples felt. And he uses the word troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. It means to be agitated, to be disturbed. The mind and the thoughts are all over the place. You know the feeling. And you're filled with emotion, panic. They were perturbed, they were agitated, restless. And their whole being was shaken by what they'd heard. And our Lord knows. He sees their hearts and their minds. He knows that they haven't understood what he said. 
And even though he's going to explain carefully in this chapter and the following chapters, they'll still struggle to understand. It's really when the resurrection takes place and afterwards that they really begin to click and they, they, they see that what our Lord said was so true. And from Pentecost they could see it even more clearly. So here are confused, panicky, agitated disciples. And our Lord is speaking to them. He's not impatient, I think. If we were talking to a group of people and we'd been telling them for three years what was going to happen, we might be impatient. You should have remembered. You should have understood by now. I remember in junior school, my parents telling me, you should know, you should understand this, it's so simple. But I couldn't see it. But we can be impatient with one another. But our Lord is patient, he's, he's loving them, he's not angry. And whatever our confusion is as Christians, the Lord still loves us and he cares. And what these disciples did not know was that our Lord Jesus himself was troubled. Isn't that marvelous, really? Our Lord in himself was agitated. He was troubled. He knew there was a storm just ahead of him. He knew he had an awful ordeal to go through. And in his emotions, he was in turmoil. There's a sense in which he wanted to shrink back from it. Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. He knew what it was to be troubled, to be agitated. And the disciples didn't have a clue as to what our Lord felt. They didn't seem to care. They were preoccupied with themselves, as we are so often. If you go back into John chapter 11, you may remember the death of Lazarus. And our Lord eventually visited the village of Bethany and uh, comforted the, the two sisters. Then he went to the sepulchre where Lazarus had been laid. And as he looked at the sepulchre and as he ordered the stone to be removed, and hearing the mourners with their dirge, we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ groaned in his spirit. And then the same word is used, and he was troubled, he was agitated. Almost a sense of anger there. Seeing the darkness of these people, their, their unbelief, even says to, to one of the sisters, don't you believe that he will rise again? Oh yes, eventually at the general resurrection. And so he, he groans, he, he's troubled, and he's in the presence of death, physical death, 
death which intruded the universe. God made the world perfect. And Adam, the first and climactic act of God. And then with Eve, they sinned against God and God brought physical death, expelled them from his presence. Disharmony came into nature. And the Lord Jesus Christ knew all this. And he's in the presence of physical death. Death that brings sorrow, that breaks relationships, that ends earthly life. Physical death is something awful, it's an enemy. You know it's with relation to loved ones, close friends. And how you, you wish they had not died. But death comes. It's appointed to all of us once to die. It's the result of sin. And one day, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, death is going to be abolished. Believers will have new resurrection bodies, like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. There'll be a new earth, new heavens. But until that day, death is a reality. And our Lord Jesus groans and is troubled. In John chapter 12, he tells his disciples when the Greeks come and they want to see him, he says, now is my soul troubled. It's the same word. He's agitated, he's disturbed. Almost a sense of panic, alarm. Now he sees even more clearly what's ahead of him. There's a sense in his human nature he doesn't like it. To be betrayed. To be lied against. To be cruelly beaten by soldiers. To be spat upon. To be hung on a cross. And even worse than that, on the cross to cry out in those hours of darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time ever in eternity, the father turns his back on his son. There's a, there's a curtain in their relationship. They, the Lord Jesus will not be comforted by the father. And our Lord was troubled. And yet our Lord Jesus here is not preoccupied with himself, but with his disciples. And he turns and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You're agitated, you're troubled, you're panicking. I know exactly how you feel, but far more. Then he tells them, believe in God, believe also in me. That's the, the context of what our Lord is saying. Then he goes on to give what really are commands. The rest of verse 1 says, believe in God. He's not asking them to believe, he, he's commanding them. Believe in God the Father. And they did. When they had asked our Lord Jesus to teach them to pray, he taught them, 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Remember in Matthew chapter 6, he tells them that they should not worry. They should not be anxious about the future. And he begins to talk about the flowers of the field and the birds in the air and how attractive the flowers can be and how the birds, they, they don't have a fridge or a freezer. They don't store up their food. Your heavenly Father feeds them. He clothes the grass and the flowers of the field. And you are of much more value. Your heavenly Father knows what you have need of. And our Lord is telling these disciples, look, believe in God the Father, trust him. Trust his promises, all that you know about him from the Old Testament, believe him. Our problem is that our minds can be chaotic. We don't bring our thoughts into subjection to the word of God. And it's possible to be reading the Bible at home or hearing the Bible explained in church and afterwards you feel wonderful. You feel nice and warm and yeah, God is good. And a few minutes later, something bad happens. And you've forgotten all about what you've read. You forget about God, but you, you just worry, you panic, you complain. And our Lord is bringing these disciples back to basics. Don't be agitated. Believe in God the Father. I wonder if you do that in your troubles and difficulties, in your disappointments. But our Lord goes even further. He goes on to say, believe also in me. And it's another command. Believe also in me. Yes, believe in God the Father. Believe also in me. And in this chapter, our Lord will go on to explain the close relationship between the Father and himself. We're equal. I know the Father. I do what the Father tells me. I, I love him. We're together. But I want you to believe me. I want you to believe what I'm saying. I want you to believe what I'm going to do. Believe also in me. And so chapter 14 and 15 and 16, our Lord just spells out what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he shows how important what he says is and how unique his work is going to be. Believe me, as I talk about myself and as I talk about my miracles, as I talk about my death and resurrection and the peace I'm going to give you, believe me. Don't you sometimes have to preach to yourself if you're a Christian? Don't you sometimes have to say, well, why am I panicking? Why am I so full of fear? I must believe the Lord Jesus. I must trust his word. I must believe he is with me. 
This is the appeal to these disciples. Believe also in me. They thought they were losing the Lord Jesus. They thought it was the end of their relationship. But our Lord tells them, believe also in me. And then you know in the context there's a dramatic change in what our Lord says to them. He begins in verse 2 by talking about heaven. You may wonder, well, why? The disciples are panicking. They're agitated. And yet our Lord lifts their thoughts from their circumstances to, to the future. He talks about the Father. and says, in my Father's house are many mansions. He's lifting their thoughts from themselves and their circumstances to, to heaven. There are many dwelling places there. Plenty of room there. It's my Father's house. That's where God the Father is. It's where he displays his glory, his presence. It's my home, our Lord will tell us later. I came from heaven. I came into this world. The Father sent me. I know all about heaven. It's my Father's home. There's plenty of room there. I think of this uh, in terms of the task of the church, which is to share the gospel. John Elias, the great Welsh Calvinistic Methodist preacher in the early 19th century, he had a famous sermon he preached on the words of our Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Towards the end of his sermon, he begins to, to talk about the glory of what Christ did and how sinners, if they believe in him, can be saved and go to heaven. And he turns to the congregation and says, well, you may wonder why I'm preaching as I am to many hundreds of people. I'm preaching because there's room in heaven for sinners to be saved. You may wonder why we translate the Bible into other languages. It's because people in other nations can read about the Lamb of God and eventually go to heaven. Or why do we send missionaries abroad? It's because there's room in heaven and the Father has chosen a vast number of people to be saved. And those whom the Father has chosen, they're going to be brought through hearing the gospel, through reading the Bible, through personal witness, they're going to be brought to Christ. And so we have to be sharing the gospel. Heaven needs to be filled. The elect of the Father need to be saved. Isn't it a wonderful thought? <clears throat> I'm not sure what the population of my stake is at the moment when 
we lived here, it was about 27,000 people. And the number of Christians would be relatively small percentage. There's room in heaven. The Lamb of God has died for sinners. Redemption has been obtained. And people need to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our privilege, it's our task. I was mentioning to my wife last night, thinking of coming here this morning, that when we had to move from the manse we had in Cemetery Road to a house in Llangynwyd, we got to know a lady uh, in the street who whose husband had died tragically. She was terribly upset. And she came in for a cup of tea and she began to talk. And she began to ask questions about the gospel. Oh, after about four or five months, she started coming to the service. And what a joy it was to, to know one day that she had trusted Christ. I've gone through this, this awful period, she said, two or three years of darkness, of sorrow, and I've seen something wonderful, that Christ has died for me. And that there's, there's heaven for me. She actually came with a group to our, my induction in Bangor. And died not very long afterwards. But there are people in this street and in this town, in the villages around, who need to be saved. We don't know whom the Father has elected, but we do know that when the word is preached, when Christ is honored and declared, that the Holy Spirit will work powerfully and call them effectually to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's plenty of room in heaven. Then our Lord goes on to say, if it were not so, I would have told you. We hear a lot about fake news, don't we, today? Misinformation. But our Lord is saying, I'm not telling you fake news. I'm telling you the truth. I know all about heaven. I know all about my Father. And I'm telling you the truth, that for the believer, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. So these disciples who were so distressed and bewildered why our Lord was leaving them, they now hear, well, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he's going to go via the cross. 
And he's going to take the sin, the guilt, and the punishment of our sin upon himself on the cross. And there Jehovah, the Father, will smite him in our place. He'll be punished, and in his person, his divine person, he will absorb what is infinite punishment that we deserve. And towards the end, he cries out, it is finished. Third day, he's raised again from the dead, conquers death and hell and sin, and then returns later to heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. During the final months of my brother's life, I was able to visit him just pre-COVID, fairly regularly. And there are occasions when one could be just overwhelmed by the presence of God. One afternoon he turned to me and said, Edel, you wrote a book on heaven, but I could write a book on heaven now, or I could add a chapter to that book, because what I'm experiencing here is heaven on earth. The Lord is here. The Lord is preparing me and taking me to heaven. You felt so humbled. The reality, the hope of the Christian, the believer, the one who knows and trusts in Christ and who has been given the gift of eternal life, heaven is there before us. And John knew that. Sometimes you say to me, the Lord is real, he's real, he's with me. And he quoted these words in verse 3. I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. One application of that is that many Christians believe that when a Christian dies, the Lord actually comes by the Spirit, makes himself so real and escorts us to heaven. My brother believed that, that the Lord is here. He, he's taking me. He's so wonderful. And our Lord is saying to these disciples, believe in me also. Do we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we believe what he's saying in these words? then Thomas, of course, expresses doubt. We don't know where you're going, he says. How can we know the way? And our Lord, in those well-known words, one of the seven I am statements, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. It's well known amongst Christians in North Wales that when we moved as a family from my stake to Bangor, I didn't understand the one-way system in the city. And sometimes one-way systems can be complicated. And the first three or four days, I went into the city centre the wrong way. And cars, car drivers, they raised their hands. Bus drivers did the same. And so I waved back. One or two cars, they flashed their lights and I flashed mine. I remember going home some days and saying, you know, they're very friendly in Bangor. They really have given me a, a real welcome. Towards the end of that first week, I was driving again the wrong way. <laughs> and uh, it was partly a bus station. And one of the bus drivers drove out a little into the middle of the road and stopped me. He was very kind. He said, do you realize you're going the wrong way? Well, that was news to me. So he explained the system. And remember him saying to me uh, in Welsh, he said, now, if you don't turn around, you could have a nasty accident around the corner because cars come round quickly. So I listened, I turned round, and they watched me. And then I went round the right way. I was going the wrong way. And you know, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're all going the wrong way. Running away from God, rejecting God, refusing the gospel. And this sometimes, despite the prayers of godly parents, despite the prayers of Christians in a church or a Sunday school. We're going the wrong way. We're bent in rebellion against God, his gospel. We want to do what we want. I'll do it my way. And that way leads to death and destruction. And our Lord is saying, look, if you want to get to heaven, if you want to know the Father, I'm the way, the only way. No one comes to the Father except by me. No other religion, no other leader. And there are Christians in Kabul who are willing to die for the sake of Christ rather than convert to Islam. They know that Christ is the only way. Are you persuaded of that? Are you believers? And those of you listening this morning, I am the way, he says. I'm the one who kept the law of God and honored God's justice. I'm the one who's died for sin. I'm the one who's conquered death. And only by me can you be saved? So no wonder Peter could say in the Acts, there's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Or when the jailer asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? The answer of Paul and Silas is, is so certain. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. No other way. And so our Lord is saying to us this morning, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm telling you the truth. And may God help us to welcome his words and obey him. Let us pray. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to make these words live, to make them real and relevant for us, to pierce the darkness and the ignorance of our minds and the rebellion of our hearts. Oh, Lord, just help us that these words, Lord, will become reality for us, that our hearts will not be troubled, but we will know the way through the Lord Jesus Christ to heaven. Hear us, therefore, and bless your word today for our Saviour's sake. Amen.